0: the David Cassidy connections with Louise Poynton cherish the legacy.
1: We sat down and ran and David and I just, it was like, bring it on, you know, we're perfect together. We're absolutely perfect together. It was a natural and I loved them all and they loved me. It was just one of those things, you walk on a set and it's like, oh, I just came home. And I made a movie camera out of my, the cardboard in the, my father's shirts that would come back from the dry cleaners. And I taped together what I thought a movie camera looked like. And I would literally hold it and film myself getting out of bed and think I was in VistaVision and Technicolor. And I did this for way too many years. And I would take it out on the street like I was doing a TV broadcast. And I made a little fake microphone to hang around my neck. And I used to get upset that directors never said anything to me. <clears throat> and I was always petrified that I wasn't good enough. And I finally went to a director, and I, I don't think it was on Partridge but I but maybe it was actually, because I was more comfortable there. But I finally went to somebody and said, why don't you ever give me direction? What he said, he said, because you're doing a good job. Why would I give you a, a note?
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David, his fans, his music, and the friendships people have because of David. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and today I'm very excited to welcome Bruce Kimmel, perhaps the most popular returning guest on the Partridge Family television series. He made an immediate impact with the viewers and cast striking an instant chemistry with David Cassidy, Shirley Jones and Susan Day. In this special episode, Bruce recalls how the cast made him feel like one of the family, his friendship with David and speaks movingly about the man he knew. Bruce is a renowned film and stage director, author, composer, actor, songwriter and a Grammy-nominated music producer. He reflects today on his influences as a boy, early auditions as a young actor, why he always has to be creative, his approach to directing, and admits he's never had a holiday in 35 years. He wrote and directed the first nudie musical, has produced solo albums for Helen Reddy, Petula Clark, and worked with Lauren McCall and Dorothy Loudon, who starred alongside David in his first short-lived Broadway show, The Fig Leaves Are Falling, in 1969. For the past decade, he has hosted and produced his successful monthly cabaret series, quitzerland and we talk about the challenges of moving the production online. When we caught up, Bruce had just finished the first night of Motel 66, a collection of one-act plays, one of which he had directed, all set in Motel courtyards along the historic Route 66. How was the first night?
1: Of our show? Yes. Oh, well, you know. It was, yes. fine. It, yeah. was it was outside, very noisy uh, neighbourhood, so we had a lot of helicopters and airplanes. And they're, they're just tiny little short plays, so I just uh, yes. I did one as a favour to them. And, uh, right, fun.
0: yes. Now, have you ever driven Route 66?
1: I have. You know, I must have, because I did a tour in uh, 19... <laughs> uh 67 i want to think maybe 66 oh yeah Uh, we went all over the country one night uh play dates and uh so i we must have been on route 66 because we went everywhere i have no memories of it i don't remember it i know the theme song from the tv uh the tv show very well that's my
0: right i don't think we had that over here
1: oh really yeah there was a tv show called uh Route sixty six with Martin Milner and George Maharis and a lot of very famous guest stars. And oh wow! Theme by Nelson Riddle. It was exciting. Many old friends did it who were children at the time.
0: I'm intrigued, Bruce, as to where you find the time in your busy life to do all the things that you do.
1: I don't, you know, have an answer to it. I just do it. I just, I don't know what I would do without that. You know what I mean? I get very bored if I'm not busy and doing stuff. I do like an occasional uh, day off.
0: Yes. Uh, but you. But I have,
1: somebody asked me last night, Are you going to travel? And I said, well, For what reason? And they said, For vacation. You know, we've been got down for a year and a half. And I realized that I have not had a vacation where I haven't been working in probably 35 years. I'm in an actual where I've gone somewhere and done nothing but relax. So yeah. it's always been work. You know, if I go to New York, it's always for work. It's, it's, then that's the only place I've gone, really. Yeah. So it might be nice to come to your city one day, to London, if you're in London. I don't know. I never have done it. I've never gone uh, out of the... The only place out of the U.S. I've been is uh, Canada. So I can, you know, if I get a passport, I guess I can do it, right? I'm vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. So I can go anywhere I damn well please right now, and that would be
0: good. <laughs> That'd be great, but you're always welcome here.
1: All right, then. Because, I mean, one should go to London and Paris and Italy, I think. Yeah. And Japan. I really want to go to Japan.
0: But where do you find the time to do your daily blog? Because it's been going, what, since 2001?
1: Yes, November. Well, there will be 20 years old in November. Uh, on November 9th, it's it's unbelievable really. I started it because I was, uh, I had a record label back then um, and uh, there was turmoil in this label and it turned very ugly and I was uh, ousted from my own label that I created. So that ended and that was very uh, tumultuous. And I, you know, combated them as best I could, but I realized, you know, what I'll do is I'll start a thing where I can tell the truth and tell it in an amusing way. So we started this Saints His Way uh, blog. <laughs> and uh, I, who, who knew? You know, the first week of it, uh, I didn't write. I wrote every day during the week, but the guy had suggested I, I, or I had suggested that I take the weekends off and just do five days a week. And after about three days, I go, I'm not taking off I got to do it every day and I have done it literally every day since about November 16th of 2001 and even when we've had issues with the site, technical issues with the site, we've still never missed a day. So that's pretty good, right That is amazing. And most of its archive we lost when we switched to a new host they did something and they lost a few uh, entries, I'd say about 20. <clears throat> but we, they, 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 luckily the others were on mirror sites, what they call mirrors or mm. archived uh, sites, which they were able to restructure. Uh, so we have, uh, I would say all of them, but about 20 are archived still. You can go all the way back to the first blog mm-hmm. November 9th 2001 they're pretty funny the early ones and then I wouldn't I had I was asked to start another label like right then and there and I wouldn't do it and I didn't do it for three years then I did it and that label is still with us one is not always in control of one's destiny but I have been for a while and that's a nice thing
0: do you always have to be creative
1: yes I don't know what life would be without that just from the day I was born. I mean, I remember my childhood with uh, extraordinary clarity and have written about it uh, a lot. And uh, I just, from the first memories I have, I was either watching TV or pretending I was filming myself or trying to be in a movie or coming uh, I mean, from like two years old or three years old, from the first conscious thought, I was either at the t- our little black and white TV Watching Boston Blackie or uh, other shows you didn't have there, uh, Waterfront, and uh, these very early 1950s shows, and uh, and watching the live, they had Kitty show hosts in L.A. that were live every day, and oh. I grew up loving them. I ultimately made a documentary about three of them. But we it was just, it was there from the, I mean, it was all, all about acting at the start. But really, I wanted to do, as I think back on it, I really wanted to do everything that I had a talent for. Because I think to not nurture your talent is a sin somehow. And a lot of people, you know, put stuff aside so they can be focused on one thing. And I did for years was, you know, just trying to be an actor. But, that mm. you know, it, it was never enough for me because I, I was a decent director and I was a decent writer and why not do yeah. it? And ultimately I got to make movies and yeah. write books and why not?
0: If you'd concentrated on one area, would that have been enough for you? No,
1: because I grew very, very tired of the, the, not acting in general, you know, cause I was an okay actor, but I, I grew tired of the business and the games and the, the shift of power Uh, that happened, and I talk about it in my book, but uh, in the late 70s or early 80s, the dynamic of the business changed, and it became not fun. Mm -hmm. And I kept doing it for two or three or four more years, and then I would only do commercials. I had a very (laughs) bad, uh, I guess you would call it a little uh, meltdown in an audition room where they, it was just some, I think it was, too close for comfort, I want to say, or the facts of why one of those kinds of shows. But it was way after its expiry date. It was they were in syndication, so the original people were not involved anymore. They were awful in syndication. I mean, they, when you know when they did the lesser versions of the shows on off channels, they weren't the same shows. And I went into for one of them, and it was terrible. I mean, it was a terrible script, and all you can do is just speak it you know, and go home and get it or not get it. <laughs> I, yeah. they, I read it. I read it as well as you can read awful material. And I turned to go and they made the mistake of saying, can't you make it funny? And I turned back to them and I said, is that my job or the writer's? Because no one could make this script funny. I don't care who's here. Jerry Lewis, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, you you bring in the comic actor and show me how he makes this funny and I'll I'll buy you dinner and I, that was the end of it for me oh. <clears throat> and uh, and I'm glad in a way you know it was, and I was still doing stuff I just, still did a lot of I was shocked when I wrote the the uh, memoir that I always thought the eighties were a total disaster for me and they weren't <laughs> I mean I, it, it seemed like it certainly but. I worked a lot in the '80s, from a lot of commercials, and uh, and I was, you know, the uh, intrepid sex news reporter for Mr. Hugh Hefner on Playboy on the air, and the, one of the first cable shows. You know, he created a network, uh, the Playboy Channel, and mm-hmm. he asked for me specifically. Hef did Hef, as we call it, and uh, I was, and I, I I understood it because his favorite movie at that time, was the first Nudie musical, which is a film I made in 1975. And I was told, because I had a friend who worked for a big movie theater chain at that time, uh, said, you'll never guess, Hefner uh, just ordered a print of your movie to show at the mansion. I I said, are you going? And he said, yeah. So he went and he said the reaction was unlike anything he'd ever heard. I mean, screaming laughter. They showed it a second time that night. And then he kept showing it over the year it was the only film he would show multiple times he would just keep getting the print and uh when the dvd came out not the blu-ray but the dvd came out in 2002 I, there was a dvd store right down the street from me and i used to go in and, and buy stuff but i went in that morning to see the display to make sure we were prominently displayed since I was a neighborhood boy. And it was, and the salesperson came running up to me and he says, you won't believe who just ordered your film. I said, Efner. And they said, yeah. Oh. And then I wrote him because I hadn't had any contact with him for years. And I, I wrote, him. I said, I said, I knew you would buy the first copy. I would have been happy to send it to you. Hope you're well, miss you, miss the parties. And he wrote a very sweet note.
0: Because oh, wow. I left
1: under, I did it for a year. The Playboy stuff. It was a, you know, like their end, their their comic, uh, sex news reporter. Yeah. Silly stories. So I was on the A list for a year. So every Friday night, I went to the mansion to the parties and saw movies. I actually never saw a movie because always Will Chamberlain would sit in front of me, and he was six foot seven. So. One never saw a film at the mansion with Wilt in front of you and but it was great food and nice people. People were doing things that I never did uh because I was not that person, but uh I learned many, many things at the mansion. And I would be in the game room playing Frogger, uh, which was a popular second game to Pac-Man, and uh, It was an adventure. And I went to the big pajama parties. You know, there were two of those a year. And it was fantastic. And people loved the cable show. And he loved it and loved me on it. And then they brought in a producer I really did not get along with and hated. Mm. And so I stopped doing it. I stopped being on the (laughs) A-list. And I've never wanted to ever go back to it. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, we're doing a pilot, we want you, I would probably do it. Because somebody came to me and asked me to do a reading of a musical because they lost an actor in New York, a friend of mine. And and I said no a bunch of times and because, you know, it's too nerve-wracking after 30 years of not doing it. And uh, I kept saying no, and they said, what would it take to get you here to do it? I said, first class and a first-class hotel. I'll be there. And I thought they would say no, and they said Yes. yes. I never learned the lesson that you have to say no and mean it you can't say, well, if you do this, thinking they will never do it. Because I had that experience with a terrible movie I did called Racket with Burt Convey and uh, Linda Day George and Edie Adams and Phil Silvers. And a lot of really good people wasting their time. It was Tanya Roberts' first picture. And I had, you know, a couple of scenes and it was fine. I, anyway, they wrote, the director I'd worked with him when he was a choreographer, David Winters, and they called me and they said, David, I really want you to do this. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, it's just a couple of scenes. It'll be one day. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> 10 years in the business, I'm not doing that anymore. So go away. And then they wouldn't take no for an answer with my agent. <laughs> and he kept saying, they just really want you. and. Uh, they're, they keep offering more money. I said, I don't want to do it. I said, I'm just beyond that part of my life. And mm-hmm. they kept, so the agent finally said to me, what would it take? Cause they're not stopping. He said, would you accept star billing in the front credits, your own card and your name on the poster and triple what they're paying you? I said, of course I'm thinking they would never do that and they did it Um, i'm on the poster you know i'm in the movie for five minutes it's but me me and phil silvers are on the poster and i'm all right with that Uh but you have to i say i and there are other things i said i don't know if any of this is interesting to anybody but i i remember walk two things i my agent called me and said the director of They're doing a sequel to Rich Man, Poor Man as a TV movie, Beggar Man, and all star cast. And there's one little scene and the director who I worked with in a commercial really wants you. He thinks you're the only one who can do this is really, he wants somebody funny in the scene. And I said, one scene. And they said, yeah, I said, I don't want to do it because I I don't want to do it. And they said, oh, they really want you. And I said, I don't want to do it. And I said, who's the scene, which was by mistake. And they said, Gene Simmons, uh, the actress. Not
0: yes. The roller,
1: uh, and the minute they said, Gene Simmons, I said, when and where? <laughs> because who wouldn't? And yes, I loved right. her so much. And the other thing was the same situation was uh, my uh, manager called with an appointment for Angie, the TV series Angie with uh, Robert Hayes and Donna Peskow. And yes. it was like, you know, it was like all those happy days, the and Shirley kind of series. I went because they said to go. And I, you know, you didn't, in those days, you didn't get the script in advance. You went and got the sides. And I got the sides and I'm looking at these sides and I'm going, there's no lines. There's one line. And I called my manager and said, I'm leaving. I'm not doing one line. I'm not doing one scene. I don't want to do it. She said, you are staying there and you are doing it. Try reading it. And not looking for the dialogue, she was really tough, my manager. Mm -hmm. I said, fine, whatever. So I read it, and it was all physical, reactive comedy, which I love more than anything, of course. So I got it. I read it. Nobody can do that stuff like I used to do it. And I got it, and it was one of the greatest things I ever did. I mean, it's so funny to this day because it came out on DVD, and I hadn't seen it in 40 years, and it's really funny. It's all, but it's all reactions. I didn't have to learn anything. I had one thing where I do a singing telegram, and that's about it. Well, so that turned out to be great. And then they talk about bringing me back. I never I think it went off the air or something, but you never know. You do. The point is, you never. Know.
0: Oh, that is, that is fascinating. How interesting is that?
1: But I never minded one scene because that's the way I started off in the Partridge yeah. family. It was a great scene. I did a thing uh, called, what was it called originally? I think it was called Circle of Fear originally. And it was in my early, it was in 71, I think. And they called and they said, it's just a short scene, but uh, go in and read for it. And I read for it and they liked me, and I got it. But the scene was with Patricia Neal. And right after, she, it was the first job she did after recovering from her many strokes. Yeah. And so, oh my God! You know Patricia Neal. How can you not want to run lines with Patricia Neal? I worked with some really great. Yeah. Folks,
0: you one lady you worked with was uh, Dorothy Loudon.
1: Many times. Yeah. As, a, as in a recordings.
0: And isn't it ironic that she was the star? Um, in the fig leaves of falling, which was I David, know with
1: David, yeah.
0: <laughs> David's first Broadway show. Did she ever talk to you about that?
1: No, and that stuff never came. Had I had I realized it at the time, I would have told her I used to do the show. But she did. I think we did three or four albums where she appeared, uh, and she was. I loved her. Oh my God, we. It was a real love affair, Dorothy and me, and. Uh, she just trusted me because I got, you know, some actors, whether it's film or TV or in a recording studio, don't are wary of someone they don't know. And right. rightfully so, because is the guy an idiot or is he, is, what is he going to say to me? I don't know. And she was struggling with a, <clears throat> what eventually killed her. I think uh, some kind of bronchial infection, which I think was much more serious than she let on. And she was just struggling the entire day it was a, studio cast album of a new musical and I got her through to the end and she just loved that I was gentle and said don't worry I'm doing multiple takes I can I will piece together and I will be handling you with TLC <clears throat> so she already liked me but she we got to the last thing in the show that she did and it was a sung line that was musically not good I will say hmm. difficult and she could not do it and her voice was like totally gone And I turned to the composer, and she was in the studio, and I turned to the composer in the booth, and I said, you know what, never liked it, never liked that line sung. It's a beautiful line. The people know that line from the movie. Uh, It was a musical version of Night of the Hunter. And uh, the rest of the score is beautiful, but that line couldn't be sung. It's not a sung line, a classic Lillian Gish line from the movie. And I said, we're never going to get it. We're going to be here till midnight if you think we're ever going to get it, and we're not going to get it, and it'll be terrible. He said, well, do what you think is best. So I walked in, and I just whispered to her. I said, speak it. And she looked at me, and she went, oh, thank you. And and it's so beautiful on the album. She just does it so beautifully. She was a great gal. And, you know, I was living in New York. I lived in New York for a year in 1969, and I think that show played while I was there. And I did not, for whatever reason, because I became known <laughs> as a record producer for doing songs from flops. Yes. And I never saw them. <laughs> there were so many flops in that year. So many. And I've recorded songs from all of them pretty much. But I wouldn't go. I, don't, I guess it, it cost so much, it was $10 or something, or $12 for the orchestra seats. And that was so much money. You know. <laughs> Uh, so I only wanted to see the hits and so I never went to Lestrada and I never went to the Fig Leaves are Falling and I never went to Deer World with Angela Lansbury and I, all of these humongous flops but I did discover, I'll tell you when I discovered the Fig Leaves was in the 70s you know, I, I didn't connect him with it ever <clears throat> until much much later but there, I got a 45 I used to collect 45s, so I would go to stores Thrift shops rummage around anything from a show. And I got one called uh, Did I Ever Really Live? Steve Lawrence, I think, sang it. And it said From the Fig Leaves Are Falling. And it was a great song. I mean, gorgeous song, male for a male, older male. And then, uh, and I always wanted to record it. I never did. We did it in a Kritzenland show. And Dorothy had a great song called "All My La- All of My Laughter. But I don't know what David did in the show. I don't know what his. I don't know if he sang. In, I don't know if he had songs or.
0: Yes, he did feature. But you can certainly hear his young vocals in the background. Yeah. And that.
1: Not a great way to start, though. I mean, like, uh, my mm. God. You know, to just get a Broadway show right off the. I know. Right off the bat. I mean, what was he seventeen?
0: 18, yeah, because it was January 6, 69.
1: Well, if it was 69, I was there because I got there in December of 68. And what an adventure that was.
0: Being in New York.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and failing miserably. <laughs> it was It was. what a time that, and New York was so New York then where it, you, you, it was dangerous, it was scary, but there was something about it that is forever missed by me. Mm. To, to walk down 42nd Street in those days, it was so sleazy and slimy, but mm. like it is if you ever saw Midnight Cowboy, that's exactly what, it, what what it is. And oh my God, you know, you'd take your life in your hands if you went to a movie theater on 42nd Street, which I did, because they were <laughs> cheap, 50 cents or something. <laughs> uh, but you know, to walk the Broadway, and you know, there were major movie theaters on you know two or three on every block none of which are there anymore right not a single movie theater is left Mm -hmm. it's amazing really every side street had multiple movies none but you know because i i saw every uh, all the big hits that year so that was fun but i didn't act you know i went up i remember i had an audition for george m which was on broadway at the time which i had seen and it went great I sang well I read well and then they said do you tap dance and I said well I could tell you yes but you would find out <laughs> no and you had to tap dance in that show because I think I would have gotten in otherwise I did a stop the world I want to get off in summer stock and still I'm in contact with two people from that who are in it with me and one is named Ann O'Donnell, who is still an actor, and uh, Anna Lee Rossi, I think is the other. So that was a time, and my ex wife, uh, my then wife, was pregnant with our daughter. And we watched the moon landing while we were doing the show, you know, on our off night from the show. Uh, yeah. But I, I liked it, New York, but it was very tough if you didn't have a lot of money mm. then and now. Yeah. And we lived in, we didn't live in New York. Proper. We lived in Brooklyn, Flat Flatbush. But uh, I wish I'd seen The Figleys or Falling. That would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Or talk to him about it, but you know, what did I know?
0: Mm-hmm. When you were g- growing up, you said that you were mm-hmm. enthralled by television, but also the musicals. Was there anything that you learned just by watching the musicals that you took with you through your career?
1: I would have seen Singing in the Rain. Which I love, and I remember seeing it in the theater. So that was 52. I was all of five or four or something. I used to go to the movies alone, even at four or five. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your parents would drop you off; they didn't care what. You know, I saw Carousel and the movies and King and I, and I I la- always enjoyed them, but they weren't like a huge thing with me until I started actually seeing. Well, I take that back because. Bells Are Ringing, I loved as a movie, even though it's not a good movie. I just loved her, Judy Holliday. So I remember loving that. But I was mostly, you know, um, I loved mysteries. I loved like The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Those were, and, uh, but, but Little Abner, I think Little Abner was the movie that did it for me. And that was 1959.
0: What was it about that movie?
1: I don't know other than it was absolutely fall out of your seat funny. And I was totally in love with The Leading Lady. <laughs> I mean, to this day, I am, if I could meet Leslie Parrish, whose name wasn't even Leslie Parrish, you know, it was Marjorie Helen, apparently, but, uh, and I created a little, uh, you know, I always call my first three books thinly veiled fictions in which they're totally my life, I mean, It's all true, but I got to do a couple of things that I wished had been true. And my mother, without telling me, a friend of hers took her to the set of Little Abner at Paramount. And so she saw a scene being filmed and she told me what the scene was. So when I saw the movie, I knew it. And and after I saw the movie, I said, what are you, what what kind of mother are you? (laughs) I had a very bad relationship with my mother. I said, this is not what a mother does. You take your kid to, if he loves the movies to the set. So in the book, uh, my first novel, uh, Benjamin Kritzer, I did get to go to the set. Benjamin goes to the set and meets Leslie Parrish. Yes. And is smitten with Leslie Parrish. And I saw that movie like six or seven in the days when nobody did that. Because the theater where it played, the Wiltern was just around the corner from a restaurant my father owned, very fancy steakhouse. So I would go with him to work on a Wednesday in the summer and uh, get a turkey sandwich from the kitchen. They would make me a turkey sandwich and wrap it up. And I would go to the Wiltern and see the movies at the Wiltern at the first show. Little Abner, I stayed through the second feature and saw it again. And then I went back like four or five days in a row. Because it was a quarter, you know, or something, 35 cents, 50 cents to get
0: in. My mum adored the movies and she would go to the matinees and stay for the evening show. And then she'd go back the following day after day after day just to see her favourite film. And her, her film was The Jolson
1: Story. Well, I loved, and that's the other thing. In, in I saw the Jolson story in that year in fifty nine. Fifty nine was the year this all happened because I remember it, it was every every great movie that I loved that year, like North by Northwest, came out that year at that same theater, Little Abner. But Little Abner, I just loved the songs. I bought the album, but also we had a thing here called Million Dollar Movie on Channel Nine where they would show the same movie three or four times a day for a week. Wow. So you would be able to catch it whenever you yeah. wanted. And one of those films, and I was obsessed with it, with it and even bad movies. Uh, that's how I saw Godzilla for the first time. But one of the films was the Jolson story. That was a life changer for me. Mm-hmm. Total life changer. It did imitations of him. I, would, I will not say what I did to be like him because it's not politically correct. Tough Beans, it was 1959 and I was 11 years old. I loved Al Jolson, I loved Larry Parks. I loved, and i later became very good friends with uh, Larry's wife, uh, Betty Garrett, and the son Andy Parks and Garrett Parks. But I just loved that. So I would imitate, I won a talent contest doing him.
0: Did you really?
1: Yeah, wow. at the Pan Pacific Theater in 1959. And I would do my little Monday night. Uh, every other Monday night, we had a family dinner at our house. And I would always do my variety show, my Jew version of the Ed Sullivan show, mm-hmm. and, except I was the, all the acts. And I did I did Jolson there. I did. And so that was a seminal year. And then in 19, early, no, in 1960, in June, I left L.A. for the very first time uh, to go to St. Louis with some uh, waitress who worked at my father's restaurant, and I was friends with her son. They took me to St. Louis, and during that trip, they took me to the Muni, which is this humongous 2,000-seat outdoor theater, to see a musical called Rosalie, which I don't remember anything about, except that i have seen the cast list, and I, of course, many famous people were in it. So because I looked it up on the line, you know, the internet is good for something, and (laughs) I loved it. And I have not seen Rosalie since. I have never heard a recording of Rosalie, but I can sing you the title song now. Go ahead. Rosalie, my darling Rosalie. I it's one of those things you never ever forget. (laughs) And then I came home and the polar opposite. I got back in somewhere in July, early July, and Psycho opened. And I had just read the book on the plane. And so I went to the opening matinee of Psycho with a full house at the El Rey Theater on Wilshire Boulevard. And to go from Rosalie to Psycho is so (laughs) traumatic. And Psycho was also a life changer in ways in that I will never take a shower in a tub <laughs> without the lights off. <laughs> okay. And then in 61, I started going to theater regularly. I uh, saw a lot of plays, but I saw the national tour of The Unseeable Molly Brown with Tammy Grimes and uh, the Stop the World I Want to Get Off, all these musicals. In and although I never saw the great musicals that came to L.A., uh-huh. my parents never took me to a... a, a Music, I couldn't believe. I go back and I am on this site called newspapers.com and I look at what was here. Little Abner was here with all the original people who were in the movie. Did I see it? No, uh, Sound of Music was here. They were all here, Bye Bye Birdie and How to Succeed. So the only musical I saw was Molly Brown. And then this, the, uh, that's the only musical I saw in that theater. I never went to the Philharmonic Auditorium which is where all the big ones played. I mean, Ethel Merman and Gypsy was here. Yeah. Where was I? Oh. Goodness. I mean, how horrifying is that? Uh,
0: can you look back and see that there was a path that you were perhaps destined to take? Yeah. To work in the field that you are now?
1: Yes, <laughs> from, the, from my earliest memory. I talk about it mm. uh, uh, in one of the books. But I, I used to get up in the morning I'm talking when I was three or four, and I made a movie camera out of my the cardboard in the my father's shirts that would come back from the dry cleaners. And I taped together what I thought a movie camera looked like. And I would literally hold it and film myself getting out of bed and think I was in VistaVision and Technicolor. And I did this for way too many years. And I would take it out on the street like I was doing a TV broadcast. And I have made a little fake microphone to hang around my neck and It was, I don't know what people in my neighborhood thought of me. And, but I always loved music. We had 78s of uh, Oklahoma, you know, the ones everybody had, Oklahoma, and Danny Kay. And also my father owned a bunch of bars, little sleazy bars. And I would go with him to see the money from the bars. Hated, that's why I don't drink, because you grow up with that smell and it's just disgusting. But they all had jukeboxes. So when I started going with him at four or five, they were still 78s really in the jukeboxes. So I would get all the cast-offs and then I would get when 45s came in and 53 or four, uh, I got all the 45 cast-offs. I still had some. Do you? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I have Pancho Lopez, which was this Hispanic version of the Davy Crockett song about a lazy Hispanic. Mexican, uh, yeah. Pancho, Pancho Lopez, uh, it was really funny.
0: Uh-huh. Do you have a jukebox, though, to play them in?
1: I do not. <laughs> I don't even have a record player anymore. People, people drive me crazy with this vinyl obsession, you know. I was so grateful never to have to play a record again without ticks and pops. And There's still some things that haven't been on CD yet, but I...
0: I'm intrigued about your fascination with Guy Haynes well, from the Hitchcock movie, Strangers on a Train.
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, what can we say about Guy Haynes that we haven't said already? Well,
0: well, for anyone who's, who's listening who doesn't know who he is.
1: Well, for years, I would never cop to it. I would never acknowledge it if people came up to me and said, we know you're Guy Haynes. I, mean, I don't know what you're talking about. They like, said, well, come on. He's on all your albums. You never see his face. I said, he sleeps with the producer. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and, uh, so I'll tell you uh, briefly, it's not that I have an obsession. I love Strangers on the Train, the film. But it's not my favorite, Hitchcock. But, and I, I, but I was doing an album, one of the first albums we did uh, called Unsung Musicals, which were good songs from Flops. And uh, we had found a song called Her Laughter in My Life by Maltby and Shire, David Shire and Richard Maltby. I think they kind of wrote it for Barbara Streisand and she didn't record it because she had recorded their song starting here, starting now. And he was her piano player, David Shire, for years. If you watched I hired a friend of mine to sing it. And for, as sometimes happens, it just wasn't a good, he thought he was, you know, a perfect match for it, but. I was not getting what I knew we needed for the song, which was simplicity. We did more takes than I've ever done with anybody because I'm pretty good at comping vocals Uh to make a decent track. And then he said, I know I haven't given you what you want. Please leave the tape here. In those days, there were uh, 24 track, big, thick tapes. Uh And he said, I'll do it. I'll get it right. So we left the tape there, which I never would do again. He did eight takes more and sent it, and it was the same. We tried to comp it and it did not work. So I was the only one who knew the song. So I went in and sang it simply and because it was an early album, I did not want to take credit because I didn't want it to seem like that's what I was doing, doing vanity stuff. So I said, what would be a good name to use? And Strangers on a Train happened to be on one of the table channels or something. And the minute I heard Guy Haynes, I said, ah, it sounds vaguely gay, and I love the, the name. And so Guy Haynes was born and never stopped. And The interesting thing is the actress who plays the wife of Guy Haynes in the film uh-huh. was called Laura Elliott, uh, later changed her He started using her real name, which was uh, Casey Rogers, and she was on Bewitched all the time as Casey Rogers nobody knows this because nobody recognizes her right. but she was Laura Elliott as Mrs. Guy Haynes. that awful woman if you remember the movie she's the gets killed she's the villain yes and uh, not the villain but she deserves her fate I suppose <laughs> and years later I met her Casey Rogers at a signing show. we were all doing signing stuff uh-huh. and I said oh my god my wife you're here yeah. And we laughed so hard. She <laughs> laughed so hard. And I have uh, an eight by ten. Uh, she gave me a, a photo. So we became very good friends after that. When we, she came to my house, I came to hers. But she gave me a photo uh, as her, her as Mrs. Haynes, saying to my wonderful husband. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very funny. <laughs>
0: That's priceless.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. You know, I have what? to. I have to frame that. I have to find it and frame it's Somewhere.
0: There's that link with Bewitched and Tabitha, the pilot.
1: Yes. Who knew? You know, who? whole who, world, isn't it? Who would have known that? I, you know, I had never watched a single episode of Bewitched when I got the show, the pilot. And uh, so I didn't know anything about it, really. And, but except the, the original pilot that we did was created by the Bewitched guy. William Asher, who was oh. married to Elizabeth Montgomery. And I was the first person they cast. Because I was coming off all of, the, of a lot of stuff. And it was after Nudie Musical had been made. So uh, I, I don't even know if I... I think I probably read once. There was no network, no nothing in those no. days. I just got it. <clears throat> or they watched the movie. And I, I don't know. So I got it. And then I was asked to read... I don't think we... Maybe I even tested with a couple of people, but I, I know I read with several Tabitha candidates, including some who should have done it. One of whom was, as you know, Susan Day. I didn't read with Susan, but they, they were really, she was on the top of the list. And when I saw her name, I said, give it to her for God's sake. <laughs> Give it to her. I've worked with her a bunch. We're just have incredible chemistry. It'd be great. I think had she done the, the original pilot, we would have sold instantly. Because yes. it was a year after Partridge went off.
0: She had she such a successful career. And yes. I, I can remember watching <laughs> L.A. Law. And I sat there somewhat mesmerized by her character, Grace. Yeah, she was and great. I thought, I know who she is. Who is she? Of course, when the credits came up at the end, I went, ah, well, there you go. And I thought she was mesmerizing in her screen
1: presence. She's (laughs) wonderful. And, you know, she was, uh, everybody in the 70s, after coming off a series, would have not an easy time of it. And I know she tried to do uh, movies, which she did not do successfully uh, with Skyjacked. and Ultimately, the what was it, Making Love, was that the name of it? She was naked in it, I remember that. Anyway, it's her and Michael Antkeen, I think. But she—if she had been Tabitha—but they had it. It was her. I—I me- I remember I did read with Susan Hubley, who also would have been great. But they thought the network thought they should have a Rhoda type, even though if you look at the original little girl who played Tabitha, she mm-hmm. is stunningly gorgeous today. Erin Murphy, stunning. Yeah. Her birthday yesterday. I sent her Facebook birthday message oh. saying, "Happy birthday, sis." <laughs> imagine that. I said I was your brother you know in the original and and I know very well the other the actor who did it after me the who replaced yes. me David Ancrum I have a picture of all us Adams the kid who played it on the show me and David Ancrum wow all the Adams in one part. yes but I, I again I think we we didn't sell because nobody wanted Rhoda you know on Tabitha and it was a mistake. She's good actress, the woman who did it. It wasn't the right chemistry. And they also made her, which I liked, and I wish they had kept it for the series, they made her not want to be a witch. And me, so I got all the fun stuff. I was like, I got to do the walk through walls and disappear and appear. Mm-hmm. So I had a good time. It was it was. Yeah. Fun to do, and it's on the DVD of the series. They put it on there. So Yeah.
0: Now we've mentioned uh, Susan, should we move on to Partridge Family? Of course. I'd want to talk about Quitsiland later, because I, f- I find that fascinating. Of the um, characters that you played in the Partridge Family, you had Freddie and Marvin and Richard and Howard. Did you call on real people to create those characters, to bring those personalities to life?
1: Only myself. I, I'm not that kind. I was never that kind of an actor. I'm the kind of an actor. People ask me, what's a good actor? And I said, the actors who show up, know their lines, hit their marks and go eat. Okay. That to me is a fine actor. And it uh, gets the job done. You know, I, I worked for years and years and years in television. And I used to get upset that directors never said anything to me. <clears throat> and I was always petrified that I wasn't good enough and I finally went to a director and I, I don't think it was on Partridge Town but I fi- maybe it was actually because I was more comfortable there but I finally went to somebody and said why don't you ever give me direction What he said he said, because you're doing a f- good job why would I give you a, a note I said oh okay, so I'm good then. So, but uh, no I was always you know a nerdy kind of nerdy boy uh <laughs> And I I was known, for, I guess, for it, because uh, they used to ask for my types if I wasn't available. But you no, know, I never, I, I was never, I, I don't I don't understand actors who do, do all this stuff okay. and become the thing. You know, I just was, I, I was funny and I guess, and I did it and that was it. You know, I just think if you're honest on film, I learned that lesson in my first TV show, what the difference between, I learned it kind of the hard way, I guess. So I had never done, I had tested for one pilot when I started doing professional work. Didn't get it, but it was between me and another guy. I got very far my first time out. Just gotten an agent, I was sent for the lead in a Warner Brothers pilot, and it was me and another guy. And the other guy got it, and it didn't sell. So, uh, but the next job I got uh, was a guest shot on a series uh, called The Young Lawyers. I had not done other than this little test film but the director I think liked me in a special way but he was very enamored with me because <clears throat> I was cute <clears throat> and uh, so I got it and it was like shaking I was petrified didn't know what the hell was going on I learned all my lines perfect and the actors were so at ease I, it was Gary Gary Lockwood was a guest on it and, uh, and he just kind of took me under his wing and there was a dial. they, they used to have on TV shows dialect not coaches, not dialect uh, dialogue directors whose job was to run lines. And he and Gary Lockwood uh, took me under their wing and said, just don't be nervous about anything. All you have to do is look people in the eye and and mean what you say. And they just calmed me down like nothing nobody's business. And I took to it. I always thought I was terrible in that show, uh, you know, because I'd only seen it only aired once. And I thought, oh god. Terrible, my, my posture is terrible. And so I learned to stand up straight in that show because I entered, my head actually entered a room before, prior to my body. So I figured I'd need to stand up straight because I've always had bad posture. And so, um, but I watched it. It came out on, how, how does this stuff come out on DVD? The entire series came out on DVD. It was only a season and a half, I think, or one season. And I watched it and you know, it wasn't half bad. It wasn't like I remembered. It It wasn't like disgusting. I didn't want to run from the room or anything. And it was dramatic, which was interesting Uh because I didn't do that very often. That was an interesting... Seeing myself on film, by the time I got to The Partridge Family, I had sort of gotten that part down, which is to be you, to be honest, to bring the character to you rather than trying to force something on something. Just, you know, I'm just never into that kind of... I remember one pilot, the director said, uh, let's talk about our backstories. I said, my backstories, I got up this morning and I came to the studio. I said, I don't know anything beyond that. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, they, you know, they say it was a scene. You know, the first one was a scene. It was one scene. What am I going to do? You know, going to be me.
0: You walked onto that first scene as Lori's boyfriend, Freddie. You were just like the boys we were at school
1: with. Yeah. <laughs> it works, yeah.
0: or worse, yes. No, no, no. In, in that way that they're mer- they're so nervous to meet your mother and then your brother sits and kind of grills you and... Puts
1: his know. arm around you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it was just perfect. And you just seemed to have a really good chemis- chemistry for it from the beginning. Can you remember how many times you had to do that scene?
1: One. It was so funny because we rehearsed it once. You know, it's all in pieces. So the entrance was one piece. I don't think we did that first. I think we did the couch scene first. So we sat down and ran and David and I just, it was like, bring it on, you know, we're perfect together. We're absolutely perfect together. And so the timing, they were laughing, the crew was laughing at the rehearsal. And, and Mel Swope, who was directing it, said, shoot it. And I, it was one take. And then the coverage. All of it was one take. I don't think we did two takes of anything. So on that one, it was really, really super simple, I have to say. It was a natural, and I loved them all, and they loved me. It was just one of those things, you walk on a set, and it's like, oh, I just came home. You know, it's just like, I'm home. This is my family. And that's why they kept bringing me back. Because they all wanted to be there, and you know, as, as with anyone who uh, was heterosexual, mm. is heterosexual. If you walk on a set and see Susan Day, you fall in love. You know, and you how can you not crush on that face? Yeah. So coming back was always a pleasure, if only for crushing on that face, especially in the follow-up episode, which happened that year. I mean, that was. That was the same season. So to be brought back, I think it was like five or six shows later in the same season as a completely different person. Nobody did that back then. Nobody did that back then. Uh -uh. I mean, I remember even my agent calling and saying, I can't understand why they're doing this, but they want you to come back as a different person. I didn't have to read for the second one. I never read again for anyone. So that was for a young actor. I was was still in my first year of doing stuff. And I had done, you know, for a young actor, I had done a lot that year. But (laughs) I'll tell you, and that was really fun because it was a lot, large part.
0: Yes, it was. Because you had a line in there where you were talking to Susan as Laurie, saying that she was really nice. She was the prettiest girl in school. That was said with so much genuine affection did you notice that her and david and the others were actually growing as as actors each time you were oh,
1: yeah they they were so comfortable in their own skins which is you know after a year on a series is is what happens you know and david of course would have chemistry with his mother but i mean with his stepmother yeah. uh uh but Everybody on that show, even Dan, you know, Danny was very rambunctious and not tameable, uh, but I always got along great with Danny. And he'll tell you that, you know, I, I never talked down to him. I never treated him like a kid. And I, I never had much interaction with the two young ones uh, at all. I mean, I think I met them, but they were never part of it. But that was the most fun. And the director was a great, wonderful director named Jerry London. Who yeah. Went on to do Shogun and all these big, big things. I ran into him about fifteen years ago at the director's guild and I said, I don't know if you remember. You remember, I love that scene. And he did. He loved the scene with Shirley. Yes. But when we rolled, it was just so real and honest and not forced. And and he just came up to me. He said, Oh God, we don't have to do it again. It was just wonderful. And you know, and and that it was a wonderful scene, I thought, and I still think so. And Shirley called me when it aired and said, I can't tell you how much, how wonderful that scene is. Mm. And, you know, to hear that from, you know, I grew up with Shirley Jones. My God, you know, music band, come on. Well, come that was- on.
0: And then on the other extreme in that episode, you've got David singing to you.
1: Well, that was, oh, that was, nice. I have never, I have never I, I've never understood the subtext of this, uh, and I don't try, but it makes me laugh every time I see it, because I'm look, trying to look at Susan, and the, that thing, you know, I'm doing my little goofy smile, <laughs> and, uh, and David's like, okay, this is new, this is interesting. <laughs> This is radical for television in 1971, but I I liked it. I just thought it was very funny. And, you know, and doing that scene with Susan was so easy. It was just so easy because we liked each other. I mean, it was just, we had real chemistry. I mean, you can just see it in that, especially for me, but you can just see it in that scene. There's such chemistry. And so when they did the Richard stuff, the only time I played one guy twice, I guess. I, uh, yes. I, I don't remember those really well, those two, because they, they were
0: short. Re- they were relatively short. Um, you know, you were looking at baseball cards.
1: Yeah, I think they just brought me back to bring me back that season. You know, yes. they wanted me back. You and did. they said, well, and I think in the second script, it wasn't originally a Richard, but they just made it a Richard. And, uh, you know, it was fine. I didn't like uh, the director on one of them, but I... Um, and I got irritated. But I have little memory of those, uh, but but except that Susan was there, and that was always
0: now, nice. Howard Wainwright III was yeah. hysterical. Did you enjoy p- playing that character?
1: You don't get jobs like that. You know, it's a, it's an episode of a TV show. What are you going to say? But for me, they, I think they wrote it for me. I, I uh, would like to think that uh, you know, and they called me to do it, and I had just finished a play at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, big theater in Los Angeles, working with incredible people. And so what a pleasant way to end one run, because I think we ended our run in August or something like that, or late July. And I think we shot the boat show in September. To get this gift of the show and a director who took me to dinner before we left and just wanted to spend time with me and very nice guy, Dick Tideman, to cruise up to Acapulco, you know, stopping at Mazatlan and wherever else. We stopped uh, for free in first class. Uh, and to get to entertain, you know, because they asked me to sing and do stuff uh, on the entertainment nights. So I played the piano and sang and like that. And Ruth, Ruth Gillette was on the boat with me. And so was the, what was the guy named the Captain Bill Williams something? Zucker, Bill Zucker. We were, we all cruised up. And then they joined us in Acapulco. And I have my little Polaroids that I've posted uh, of them coming onto the boat, you know, and Susan with her little cigarette buried in her hand, and David and Henry Diltz, and Henry, Henry and me. I have a great picture of Diltz and I. And we did, it, it was the best. I can't imagine a better time because it was just, we had so much fun. <laughs> And we ate every night together. And I remember a couple of nights, David and Shirley were not a couple of nights, one night, uh, were gracious enough to perform.
0: Yes, I remember you posting that and sharing a photograph.
1: Henry took a photo and I, ultimately sold them to friends of mine who knew him. So that's they gifted these to me. Uh, I have a photo of me playing for Shirley and a photo of me playing for David.
0: Can you remember what they sang?
1: I have been asked that a million times. Uh, Surely, I know I played You'll we'll Never Walk Alone. And I think I played People Will Say We're In Love. And I played them horribly because there was no music. And I'm not that great to make it up as I go along. You know, I, I know chords really well. And I got most of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no sheet music. And, you know, I don't have chords in front of me. Sure. To the best of my memory, and it's the only thing that makes sense to me, I think David sang When I Fall In Love. And sang it beautifully because I knew it and he knew it. And that one I knew how to play because I used to sing it all the time. And I just he did it so beautifully. I just but that was fun. That was that that was fun. And but mostly it was shooting, you know, the days we're all shooting and the nights we hang out hung out together and mm-hmm. laughed and we were we had our own little private area table away from people and just the, we the <laughs> it was raunchy and funny and outrageous. We were shooting the scene on the deck chairs where I squirt the... That is a really... If you look at that scene, I don't know how they get away with this stuff, you know, squirting lotion. I know. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. We won't talk about subtext. So, uh, but I remember... We were shooting that scene. There's some backstage footage that somebody has. They showed it to me of us laughing hilariously, Susan and me and David. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what was funny, mm-hmm. but that, I remember. But the point is, I remember looking at Shirley in her bathing suit because they were all in their little bathing outfits and going, "My God, for an old woman, she looks incredible!" <laughs> and I think she was at the time 39. <laughs> so. Okay. <gasps> I used to be 39 myself. So. Yes,
0: we all used to be 39. That is a fabulous scene. It's all about comic timing. And I just wanted to ask you from your experience of working with David, specifically, what you admired about his acting.
1: He's, he was fantastic. He was a, a, such a natural actor. Nothing forced... You know, I, 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 he, he. I don't know why he didn't go into movies because he's a natural. He was a natural, but his comedy timing—you never had to worry with him. It was just give and take, All, always give and take, give and take. Same with Susan. Her comic timing—you watch the little long scene where we're walking together, had or whatever. Where she's a witch, I guess, but which shows you she could have played Tabitha. Uh, right after that. And I love that scene. I just love that scene Mm -hmm. with her. That was really fun to shoot. I remember it took, we did two or three takes of the moving shot because the camera, you know, you're on a boat and the boats go like this. Mm -hmm. So, but, oh my God, (coughs) what a pleasure. And after that show, you know, they were going to bring Howard back. Yeah, Because they all came to see a musical that I had written at Los Angeles City College. They all came. They all came. Mel, Bill Bickley, Michael Warren, Susan, David, Shirley. They all came to this show, this tiny little theater. And they loved it because it was about food and very funny. A musical about food. And they thought, let's bring Howard back and make him be doing this musical about food. So we'll do a, one number from from it and you'll be in trouble. You'll lose some cast members or something and we'll bring back and you'll call them and they'll rest, save the day. And I thought, that's great. And they wrote it and I have it, but they got canceled.
0: You still have the
1: script. I do. <laughs> and That would have been really fun for me. But, you know, I I didn't, you know, David and I were still close after the show went off and he came to my house for dinner and I went to his place in Encino and, you know, he was talking about maybe doing a song of mine. We went through that, you know. I I don't think his producers wanted anything to do with anybody who wasn't part of the music end of his entourage. Because one of the songs he would have done great.
0: Yeah, because that that, that was the song I I don't have to hide anymore that you... Specifically written for for Susan.
1: For well, yeah,
0: yeah, and David really liked that that song. He
1: did because it had a great hook that has since been used by others, but I was there first for this hook. So it's a once in a lifetime hook. I just came to me, and it's really good. And then Eric Carmen borrowed it, and uh, Barry Manilow borrowed it. You know, Susan and I. I, I remember she came to see me sing somewhere. And, you know we started hanging out at her place and so it was it was it was, it was and then it, then i never saw <laughs> any of them again uh, until much later she caught the last i heard from susan mm. which is a lyric in a jimmy webb song by the way the last i heard from susan is she left a, a message with my answering service cuz we didn't have machines in 75 i was in new york shooting a the play that I had done at the Mark Taper Forum, we were filming it for PBS. And she left a message saying, I just wanted to let you know I'm getting married and uh, wish you could come to the wedding and blah, blah, blah. That's the last message I ever got from her. Because we had just had, she moved at some point. She was in the hills above sunset for a while. And that's the house I remember most because I was there a lot in 73. And in 74, she moved to a location called, it wasn't quite Beverlywood, but she moved near Robertson. She was literally four blocks from the house I grew up in.
0: Oh,
1: So that was funny. And she called and invited me to dinner. And I went, I said, you know, I could have walked here when I was a kid. We had a great time. And then she got married. You weren't
0: able to go to the wedding.
1: No, I was in New York, but I was happy for her. You know, I hadn't talked about any of this stuff for years until your book and and the people found me on these groups. People come here, it's sitting on my coffee table, and they look at it all the time. Oh, bless
0: you. Thank you for sharing your memories in it, Bruce. I mean, that was...
1: Oh, that was fun.
0: It was wonderful.
1: Coming up next... To me... I never saw his demons. To me, he was never alcoholic. To me, you know, whatever he did, I don't know what he did. I wasn't there. And I know the unfortunate part of it is, is people who do have those demons and do that stuff don't age well. And he, you know, would have looked better probably in his later years had he not done that stuff. But, you know, you can't tell people what to do. You can't direct their lives.
0: What did you learn from working on the Park family?
1: And I said, I just remember like melting down, literally melting, laying on my floor screaming. And then I got up and I went in the mirror. I went to the mirror.
0: How will you remember him? I know you saw David later in Blood Brothers. Yes. In New York. I wonder if there's a difference you perceive uh, between the TV David and the stage David.
1: Well, he was really good, and so was Sean. They had great English accents, they were just they had real stage personality, but that's how David came up. <clears throat> and he had already done, I think, a musical, had not he? He did Little Johnny Jones or something. Yes. Or... He had real presence and I loved it with them I had seen it before mm. and didn't love it and then they asked me to come see it again because they wanted me to record it because it was six years into my recording career and I said yes I'll record it without seeing it because it's Petula and I loved, loved her since I was a kid and uh, David of course I would record it and I came to see it and I said oh I met Petula I met and then uh, there was a party at Tavern on the Green after their official opening and they invited me to that because we were doing the deal. I mean, the deal was, you know, we, it was a favored nation's deal for them. They would each get their equity salary plus a percentage of the album, which was unheard of in those days for anybody to get a percentage of a cast album. Mm. I, I've told the story before, but he saw me from across the room. Now I hadn't seen him in how many years, 30, 85, 95? 22 years, 23 years. And he just came running over, and he said, I cannot tell you how many times I've thought about you over the years. And it was just like no time had gone by. And then sadly, we didn't make the recording. But the good came out of it is that Petula and I became very close. And I did her solo album. I did back-to-back solo albums with Petula Clark and Helen Reddy. You did. One yeah. of them, One of them was a lot of fun.
0: Would you have ever considered getting David into one of your plays?
1: Yes, of course. Anytime. I would have worked with him anytime. And if he was struggling, I would have been there for him. You know, but we that wasn't our relationship later. You know, in the old days, you know, we would talk all the time. He would come over, I would come over. But people have their, you know, demons. And uh, as I've said on many occasions, uh, people have asked me, how was it this, how did?" did you see that side of him? I said, no, I never saw that side of him. And I don't want to talk about that side of him because that's not my, what I knew of him to me. He was always a great guy to me. I never saw his demons to me. He was never alcoholic to me. You know, whatever he did. I don't know what he did. I wasn't there. And I know the unfortunate part of it is, is people who do have those demons and do that stuff don't age well. And he, you know, would have looked better probably in his later years had he not done that stuff. But, you know, you can't tell people what to do. You can't direct their lives. But, yes, had he ever had a project ever come up, even just to have him come sing in the studio, I would have done it instantly. I adored him. I I just adored him. I adored all of them.
0: Back in the the 70s when you would spend time together did he ever talk to you about what his ambitions
1: and dreams were no i think he just always wanted to sing he just was so happy singing i don't think the touring and the performing was always so wonderful for him and the kind of craziness that that goes goes with that but the joy of singing you could just see it for all of those years yeah. and even at the end you know when he had little voice and was struggling and you still see the joy of it. You still see that he was so happy to be up. And, and, and I like that he acknowledged, you know, a lot of people will not acknowledge their past. They want to be now. But he, he you know, he always did his partridge stuff because he knew that's what people wanted to hear. It doesn't hurt. You know, he would be part of those reunions where Susan, uh-uh. Even when she did Rosie O'Donnell and Rosie finally got her to talk about it, there was just nothing that was not fun. And I always wish she would, I would have tried to talk her into it. I would have actually flown anywhere and said, you can't put it away. It's never going to, you're never going to put this away as long as you live. Why not? I don't mean go to signing shows. And I don't mean that you have to necessarily take part in every event, but acknowledge it, love it. You know, it gave you your life and career. You would have none of this without that show. But you know, people are people and I would love to see her someday again.
0: She did a, a reunion piece with the cast of LA Law a few months back. I saw it. She was hysterically funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she listen, I if I had known about that thing, I would have and watched it live and I would have typed in, Tell Susan, Marvin, Freddie, and Howard Wainwright the is here. Yes. And she would have said something and then I could have maybe started the dialogue. Okay. They always considered me part of the show, I guess.
0: Oh, absolutely. You <gasps> were part of, of their family in many mm-hmm. ways and we all looked out for Laurie's boyfriend to appear, whoever he might be, because it just worked, Bruce. It it worked. You talk about the chemistry with David, the chemistry with Susan and Shirley. It
1: worked. Yeah, and uh, it, was a gr- it was a good show. You, you, that's why it works still. People love the <clears throat> reruns of it because it's about something, and it's funny. It's genuinely funny. Yeah. But it also has moments of tenderness and reality, and yeah. they did it really good. They had good writers, good directors for the most part.
0: What was it like working with Dave Madden? Whenever he came onto a scene, I would just want to crease up with laughter.
1: I only worked with him once on the ship. That's the only time I ever saw Dave Madden. He was never around when I
0: did my ship. Really? No,
1: because he wasn't in any scenes I was in.
0: Even though you were in no scenes together, you never had any interaction?
1: never met him until the ship. And we just, again, hit it off like a house of fire. And, you know, they didn't do what they should have done uh, because they were running out of light, I think, when he was doing the song, David. um, There's only a two-shot of Madden and I. Mm. And if you look at the reaction shots they keep cutting to we're always laughing because he's cracking me up or I'm cracking him up that's not what that shot should be about the shot should be a single on each of us and I should be looking at Susan of course <laughs> <Yes>. but, <laughs> so, but
0: oh maybe David wanted to sing to you again
1: again i uh, and i gave Susan shortly thereafter her screen kiss on the lips <laughs> not in the script that way
0: No, you engineered that one, Bruce.
1: I I told them unequivocally, (laughs) not on the cheek, not now. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) So that was fun, I have to say. (laughs) I'll leave it at that.
0: What did you learn from working on The Parkinson Family? What did you learn from Shirley? What did you learn from David?
1: I learned that sets on sitcoms can be fun can be warm, fun, non-confrontational places. And I, I had a good deal of luck in that regard. Although I, did, I don't think I did a lot of three-camera shows, uh, you know, but in sitcoms, <clears throat> it gets contentious sometimes. Laverne and Shirley being a prime example, it wasn't always uh, the happiest of sets. Right. Uh, but, and I remember doing an episode of a short-lived TV show called The Super. With Richard Castellano and his daughter. I played the boyfriend or the wannabe boyfriend of his daughter who had no talent whatsoever. Great cast, uh, aside from those two uh, Bruno Kirby and Vic Tabat, all people who went on to have really good careers. But the most unpleasant set ever, mm. ever. I mean, just a textbook in how not to run a set. Really. But they didn't have showrunners in those days, they didn't have anybody to set the tone. And,
0: it will often come through to the viewer sitting at home because happy days always generated pure happiness, family yeah. value. I
1: did that show too. Shows like that, and the Brady Bunch, you know, as silly as that show is, they, they, they resonate, yeah. especially if people saw them. Because I, again, I had a very poor relationship with my parents, didn't like my parents. So when I would see a family show, in the fifties or the Aussie you know, and Harriet, I go, why can't I have that show? Why can't my mother be like Judy Holiday? Why can't, <clears throat> you know, that's what you wanted. You wanted Donna Reed and you wanted.
0: Is that why working on the Partridge family meant so much to you?
1: Yeah, because they were like, they treated me wonderfully. You know, I was greeted warmly every time I came there. You couldn't have asked for better. I mean, just couldn't, you know, it's a really pleasant memory that I would never forget. I don't know why people need to forget these things. I don't live in the past, I'd certainly talk about it, and acknowledge how much fun it was to be an actor back then. I wrote a whole book about this. Yes. You know, that it's not fun anymore. It's not fun. There's mm-hmm. nothing fun about acting anymore, in my opinion, coming I mean, actors who are coming up. Making a self-tape at home, is that fun?
0: You make Critterland fun.
1: Well, I try. <laughs>
0: mm. How challenging has it been in the past year to bring Kr-
1: land online? It was only challenging once I decided to do it. The only challenge was not wanting to do Zoom, not wanting to be amateur, mm. <clears throat> not wanting to have technical issues. So my friend Hartley Powers and I took the time that nobody else took to figure it out. How do we do this? How do we stream it, live stream it? How do we never have a technical issue? How do we do it? And we tried Zoom, we tried StreamYard, whatever the hell that is, we tried FaceTime, all of it. And we tried, uh, we, we looked into live switching so it could switch from me to the singer in their house or whatever. And I said, how are we gonna get all these people at the same time to be available? How are we gonna do it without glitching? Because if they have bad internet, they're gonna glitch and there's always lag time. How are they gonna hear the track? You know, my stuff is relatively simple. And there was no answer to that question in terms of what people were doing. And I would watch this stuff and I'm like, oh my God. It's even the famous one that won an Emmy or something with the Stephen and birthday thing filled with technical glitches and problems and bad sound, even though they tried. So we came up with the way to do it. And uh, we did the first one and everybody went, holy moly, how did they do that? How, is, how are they streaming this live with this quality? And some people figured it out pretty quickly in terms of the singing. I actually revealed it in the first show, but nobody remembered, I guess. But all the numbers were filmed in advance on iPhones, nothing on Zoom at all. The tracks were sent to them. They recorded themselves. And then everybody, so the, the people who figured that out started copying that. We were became the poster child, and still, they thought I was live. They thought all my commentary. You know that Hartley was sitting in her house with monitors and going, "Okay, Bruce is live now." I'm over here to this pre-filmed video, and of course, I was never live. Why would I do that? So I would two weeks before the show film all my stuff and uh, send it to her. You know, we did it all on Dropbox, and she edited it all together into one show. And I had found a company that schedules live streams. So we sent the video to them and said, Facebook at this time, YouTube at this time. And we never worried. It just, it never did failed. <clears throat> and once we got off of Facebook, which I hate, um, the YouTube, we could schedule ourselves. And we really became the poster child. All these people that I know, who started doing this stuff just copied us. I mean, they copied the form format of it. You know, they tried to have a host and then it's just, we're so what we are that you can't really copy it well because I'm me, you can't be me. I, I write them funny and to, you know, I write them to be entertaining. But I was able to use a lot of great New York people in them and they were daunting to do because Richard Allen, our musical director, had to make all the track 18 or 19 tracks, after we had worked out the arrangements of the songs. Send them to people. You know, some people recorded them live to the track. Some people used earphones, and then we would mix their vocal into the track. So they were daunting, which is why we occasionally had to take a month off. A lot of work for Hartley, especially if we had group numbers, and she's so good at that stuff. And they're still copying her what she does with the group. Yes. I just watched something two days ago. I said, oh, you know, give her a credit because you didn't think of this.
0: It's a simple idea, but you've made it work so effectively.
1: I think so. And then, you know, we did this original musical that I wrote designed for this world. And again, people thought it, we did it on Zoom, that we filmed it on Zoom. And I said, how, how would that have worked? I said, since you're not seeing glitchy video and you're not hearing laggy sound, how would we have done that exactly? But it looked like it's on Zoom. You have the Zoom windows, just like (laughs) we do. And I said, you know, it was all filmed on iPhone cameras next to the computer camera. We hardly made us the windows. (laughs) And uh, I have a well-known film editor who cuts my stuff and he edited them together. Everything was broken down into sections. You know, they shot the musical numbers by themselves and sent them to us. So we always had that. And that was all done with earbuds. So we mixed all those tracks together beautifully. And they lip synced the songs really well. And uh, But all the dialogue scenes, we did three or four pages at a time, five pages. And they had their little iPhone cameras and sent us the footage. And it's cut together and it's really good. It came out great. It's coming out on Blu-ray. I will have them next week. And I did a thriller like that, designed specifically to look like it's on Zoom. And boy, did it work. People said, how did you do the one bit where the bad guy goes, he leaves his screen, and then shows up in the girls' uh, thing? I mean, were they they were in the same house, right? I said, no. I said, we're in a pandemic. They're not in the same house. Uh although he was ultimately in her house. Yes. But I said that was shot on a whole different day. It's incredible. He leaves the camera and then we're on a different day. And it worked. It worked really well.
0: You once said that you believe that you are partially responsible for bringing show music back to the recorded world.
1: That was accurate at the time and it's still accurate because in 1993, when I started doing this full time, Nobody was doing it. There were no singer albums. I mean, unless you were huge like Patti LaPone or Barbara Cook, nobody was doing singer albums. Nobody, the the Broadway cast albums, one or two a year maybe. And I just, and nobody was doing compilation albums like I was doing. And so I, when the Rez Saraband thing happened and they asked me to come and do it full time, I said, I'm not dipping my toe in the water. I'm coming out. I'm just diving in. I want people to know my name as a record producer within six months a mm. year. It happened instantly, I would say. <clears throat> and I got up for two Grammys uh, my first year, after the first year. And uh, what an incredible journey. But we were doing 19 albums a year. And nobody did that. And I gave all these Broadway singers of the day their first solo albums. Nobody had done that. Then everybody, you know, then mm-hmm. as soon as they, so after two years of seeing us sort of own the market, except for the biggest cast album, we owned it, owned it two or three years worth so that every album did well. Mm-hmm. You know, but I gave Liz Callaway her first album, Lori Beachman. Uh, no, she had done albums, but nobody bought them. But, you know, Brett Barrett, all, all these people, Judy Kay, Judy Kuhn. And suddenly everybody's doing it. Everybody is doing it. Every label is back in the cast album game. It's just, it just was unbelievable.
0: You're something of a pioneer, aren't you?
1: I don't know. I don't think in those terms, but I like to think that I have led the way a couple of times, yes. Mm-hmm. I certainly I feel that about the internet shows that we did. I had the biggest film music agent in the world text or PM me after the Tonight's the Night aired. And he said, I don't know how you did this. The, you harness this technology so brilliantly. I can't even believe it. I said, what are you talking about? I said, do you think this was live? He said, well, yeah. I said, come on. <laughs> I said, you think that when they left camera, they actually, we had another camera set up in the other room and it was just happened to be on. And I'm very proud of it. And yes, in certain ways you need the way certainly the Kritzerland shows, the live shows themselves. When we started, there were no other shows like that. Ever. <clears throat> and within two years everybody was doing it. <clears throat> there were five other shows. Yeah. Trying to do not only do what we do but the entire way we do it with Patter, with one shameless individual even did I always ended the shows with a sing-along or I always end the shows since we're still doing them with a sing-along of some sort and uh, she did it until I called her out publicly and I said why don't you just do something of your own. You
0: once did say that if you reach an impasse in your career, it's not the end of your career. Was there a particular experience in your life that makes you believe that? Yes.
1: I, in the late 80s, was, uh, uh, I'm not going to go into it too much, but at the end of my rope, we'll just say, ready to leave, (laughs) ready to check out, had my share of the sun and didn't want any more of it. Just a terrible, terrible time. And I was miserable to be around. I was miserable, I was no fun anymore. <clears throat> All I did was whine and complain, you know how it is to be around those people. And I understood why, the why of it. But this was 1988 towards the I don't know, middle of 1988. And I said, I just remember like melting down, it literally melting, laying on my floor screaming. And then I got up and I went in the mirror, I went to the mirror, I looked in the mirror, I said, you know, you're a miserable son of a bitch, you're disgusting, this is not who you are, so either end it or fix it, change it. I opted for the latter. <laughs> and i tell you it was instant it was instant i just said no more of this shit and i got in the shower the first time i ever did it and washed it down the drain and i watched it go down the drain and it's not that i haven't had bad times or days since but i know how to deal with it now <clears throat> nothing will ever do that to me again mm-hmm. and and if it does i'll go away you know i don't care you know i'm 73 years old it doesn't matter to me anymore so But I realized you brought happiness to people. What are you doing? You know, you just be positive. And literally within a a week, I think, or a week and a half, uh, my friends were producing a low budget thriller and they fired the director. And they called me and said, would you take over tomorrow? I said, oh, all right. So I, I didn't use my name, but I think it's not my kind of movie, but I got them through it. I made a releasable film. And then uh, again, like two months later, my friend, one of my best friends, David Wechter, called me and said, I'm working on this show called Totally Hidden Video for Fox. It's a candid camera kind of show. And we're desperate. We air next week and all these bits are not working Will you come in and you know how to do this? I'll show you uh, some samples. Will you work with an editor and edit the bit, and write the pattern for the narration for it? I said, all right, whatever. You know, we'll pay you $500. I said, yeah, $100, okay. all right." <clears throat> so I came in at like nine at night. And I worked till three or four in the morning. And uh, the producer of the show came in to see the cut. And it was great. I mean, I know how to do it. I scored it. It was very funny. But the bit wasn't funny. I made it funny. The the voiceover and the music and the way it was edited made it funny. He said, oh, my God, this is so great. So I go home. (laughs) I go to bed at 5 in the morning. And at 8, the phone rings. And it's David. and And David says, they want to hire you right now. Come back. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sleeping. So I drove back and they hired me at a huge salary for me. I mean, I didn't understand that kind of money back then, but in those days, because I hadn't worked in a while, but it was like $2,000 a week or something. Yeah, which was in 1988, it was pretty good. And it kept going up, you know. And uh, so I did that for three years at show.
0: It says so much about your depth of character, Bruce, that you can pull yourself back from the edge.
1: Well, it was hard. It was hard, but, you know, you have two choices. So which choice are you going to take? One, you get no chances ever again to do anything. And when you do, when it's just i live my life trying to be positive and trying to make other people positive when i see them going down the wrong roads you know i wrote a song with uh, richard sherman of uh, the sherman brothers called two roads and that's exactly what it is i wanted to write a song that was a sherman brothers song so i wrote the lyric and richard wrote the music and it's it says everything we believe and he's you know he's like me i mean we're the same person basically And uh, what a treat. And all these people I've gotten to work with, none of that would have ever happened had I checked out. I mean, the well-known, you know, it's always bemoaned, you know, actors are so stupid sometimes, and set these goals, you know, well, I have to do this by the time I'm this age, I have to do this, and why aren't I here? And that was what I always said, is I've done nine pilots, I've done every opportunity to be here, and I'm not here, I'm not anywhere near there. Why? Why me? Yeah. And, and I finally said to myself, well, maybe somebody's trying to tell you something. Maybe you should be doing something else right about now. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, if you have blinders on, take them off because sometimes what's over here on the right is really interesting and it may bring you your happiness. And that's what record producing did. And you know, six months in, I'm, I have the kind of success I always dreamed about everybody knew who i was everybody wanted to work with me and and what else could you ask for in your life and you know if things hadn't fallen apart at that record label would i have written all the books i've written no i would not have i was in the middle of writing the first one i would never have done the second one never but i got into this habit and i love it and more than anything actually and so you take the blinders off and and worlds open, color comes into your life. Yes. So I, I have a lot of people who post, I see a lot of people post on Facebook who are going down a very bad path. Send yes. them my book or I talk to them about it. Yes. And if they're smart, they take the advice. And if they aren't, they're miserable people. And they'll always be miserable. Why do you want to be in the world if it's not fun and positive? Yes. And it's hard, you know, listen, I've been, since the epiphany, of 1988, I have had many, 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 hard times and I don't care. As long as there's something to do, I'll do it. And
0: that gives you the creative satisfaction that you crave for. Huh. It, gives it, it, it
1: gives me energy. gives me a reason to get out of bed.
0: And it people can... acknowledge you and recognize you for what you do.
1: Some do, you know, I I, I don't have, you know, I don't know how many people know who I am or not. And I don't care because I know I get enough email and enough texts and enough, you know, whatever form they come in, you know, in the old days letters to know that I made a difference in some people's lives. Some people say the Kritzerland shows got them through the pandemic. Well, that's great. You know, how can you feel better than that? Or they say, you know, I was going through a really hard time and your album's, you know, I, every time you would do a new album, every two weeks, there was a new album to go by. And that got me through that hard time. Or somebody will say, as I was really unhappy, and you're, you're, I used to watch you on TV, and that would always bring me happiness. And I will tell you, I have one fan, one fan, young woman, that used to write me constantly fan letters. Michelle was her name. And she said, I'm, I was the girl who didn't have a crush on David, I had a crush on you. Hey. I thought, I'll take that, I'll take that. (laughs) And I know the movie that I made has a big, huge cult following, so that's fun.
0: When you look back at your personal experiences, do you wonder if you might be able to help people?
1: I'm not that presumptuous, but if anybody calls me I'm there you know to help if I can help I don't know that David wanted help ultimately I I just don't know that I don't know when you're traveling down a very bad road you don't want to listen to people it's very hard to listen I had to do it myself in other words you know in other words I had people telling me what you got to stop doing this you're self-destructive and I did not listen I listened to me You gotta find it in yourself. And yes, I will always say to, if I go into my alma mater college and I'm talking to the kids there, they're in a show I'm directing there, I always do the two roads analogy. I said, you know, you're all sitting here and a lot of you have never done a musical before. And I said, and the first person who says to me, please don't cast me because I've never done a musical. I'm casting you because you need this experience. And I said, there are two ways to approach a problem. Negatively, which means you will never conquer the problem and positively, which means you just might. And they always do. They always do, they're always amazed. And so, you know, that's why I like working with kids because I don't talk down to them. I treat them professionally, but I know how to handle them. And I know how to make them see. And I've had so many kids who are now grown up come back and say, I wouldn't be doing any of this without you. And it's so pleasant to hear that, you know, it's just so, to, to make a difference in somebody's life. I'm never going to be, you know, Brad Pitt. I'm never, gonna you know, those days are done and I'm never going to be anything, you know, but other than what I am. But if I did that, I'm okay. I had a great time acting as an actor. I had a great time directing and still do. I have a great time writing and still do and producing. So what's better than that?
0: All that experience, you're mentoring a new generation who are going to carry the baton. on. I
1: hope, I, ho- I hope they carry a good a good version of that. You know, I don't love everything I see today. And I wish they would have a little more history, which is what I try to impart to people. Mm. You know, you've got to have a little history. You know, you just have to find your own voice. But it's much easier to find your own voice if you have history and know generally what the rules of the genre you're writing in are, you know, mentoring, I don't ever like those words, but, you know, I just worked with a playwright who's wrote his first play and I was kind of coerced into directing, but uh, he saw his show last night with an audience and everything in the show that, made the audience really like the show, the best of all of these short plays last night, was the stuff that I and the actors recommended he do and that he did do because we brought in, he kind of wrote this kind of, I don't know what it was. It was, I guess, a drama with no laughs, you know, and it was not, that you know, the characters Mm -hmm. were good and the story was all right, but... Uh, I had some problems, uh, a lot of repetitious stuff. So I would just send rec- him recommendations. And he wisely took them. So a lot, some of it came from the acting part. You know, I wouldn't say this. I would say this. And he was smart. So yeah. he, got, he got more laughs than any of all the other shows put, to, put together. Big laughs. And he, he said to me at one point, well, I don't really feel it's all my show. It is, I said, it is absolutely all your show. I said, am I getting credit as a co-writer, even though a couple of lines are mine, a couple of lines of the actors? No, it's your show, your characters. We helped you find the voice of your writing. And he's appreciative, I I know he is. It's passion, you have to find your passion. I mean, I'll take, you know if it's a play of mine or a movie or whatever it is, I don't care if the lighting guy comes up with a line or an idea, what do I care? I always say to my actors at the first rehearsal, I love actors, my idea of being a great director is I sit here and watch you do your job. And then I'll guide you if something needs to, you know, or you're gonna inspire me and I'm gonna come up with stuff that's good and we're all gonna be in this game together. And it's empowering for everybody. And I I say, and if you come up with a great thing, I get the credit because they'll say, guy's a brilliant director. But I said, we're all, we're, we're, we're all here to make fun, you know, and art. Yep. And, <clears throat> I'm not going to stop you from trying things. And
0: no, exactly. If,
1: it's wrong, if yes. it's wrong, we'll talk about why it's wrong and we'll move on to the next thing.
0: Is there anyone that you haven't worked with who you would have liked to or would still like to work with?
1: Oh, God. I mean, every, every dead person. <laughs> Jack Benny, I would love to have at least even met him. I did meet Groucho, so that was fun. Uh, he, there's a lot of people I'd love to work. I'd love to work with Hugh Jackman. I'd love to work with Sutton Foster. I'd love to work with, you know, a lot of the, 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 the current generation doesn't interest me, but the people who actually have faces and voices that aren't cookie-cutter voices always interest me. And so, you know, all those kinds of people, I... I I love new working with new you know people I haven't worked with before. It's always a challenge, you know. I mean, I I've worked with so many incredible legends. Really, I mean, Lauren Bacall and Dorothy Loudon and Elaine Stritch and all these people. And I had a great time with all of them. And as long as you understand th- that and you know what you're doing, they listen to you. I didn't have a problem going into the booth with Lauren Bacall and saying, "If could you try doing it this way." I think if you take this little beat there, and she goes, oh, great, great. And that's all professionals want, is somebody who knows what they're doing and has a good sense of things. I mean, it's just find the way, you know, you just want to help them be the best they can be. That's all you ever want to do as a director is help every actor be the best they can be. And sometimes you have to push, you know, if it's not an actor is great. And, you know, I, I always try to do it in a nice way. Sometimes I'm not nice. And uh, <laughs> and then we laugh about it.
0: What is next on the horizon for you?
1: We're doing uh, the uh, first live Kretzelan in a year and a half in July, late July. And we'll be back sporadically after that. I'm not going to do it every month. But, you know, every few months we'll do a show.
0: So you've still got lots of ideas churning away? and
1: I've been, you know, working on a musical with people kind of, dramaturging it, and I'll direct it ultimately. Uh, A movie called Nothing in Common, which was a Tom Hanks movie with Jackie Gleason and Gary Marshall directed it. We're doing a musical of that, which we're doing reading here on Tuesday night. Next year, I'm directing two musicals and uh, writing a new book in January. This year's book is already out. Fun, people are enjoying it, so... I've got energy. I can get out of bed in the morning without help. That's a good thing at my age. You know, it's always, there's always going to be something to do. I mean, not, I'll create something to do, believe me.
0: Well, yes, like flying to London, Paris, and Rome.
1: Yes, I got to do that because (laughs) those days are going to be gone soon. So, although you never know. My friend Richard Sherman. Just turned 93. And my uh, friend Bill Hayes, who used to be on a soap, uh, is still on a soap uh, called Days of Our Lives here, 96. And still singing and still doing. and You know, God bless them all.
0: Let, let me just ask you what, one more story going back to uh, your time with the Partridge family and, and with David specifically. Do you have a favorite story he perhaps ever shared with you?
1: Not a story he shared with me. I just remember we laughed constantly. And I remember, and I've told this story before, the great night he came to my apartment for dinner in 70, this had to be 72 or 70, 72, yes. Maybe even 70, maybe it was 73, that makes more sense actually, or even 74. Maybe it was 74, and that makes more sense. Yes, it was 1974, that makes total sense. So he comes to my house for dinner, I make my usual dinner of beef stroganoff. It's the only thing I ever made. And my ex-wife is there, and my daughter has now watched the show since she was one years old. She's four, probably four and a half. And she loved the show, and she loved him. And He walks in the door, and she's in the living room, and she looks, takes one look at David Cassidy and runs in her bedroom and slams the door. I said, what's the matter with you? What do you, what is this? She goes, it's David Kelly. I said, yeah, so come and have a conversation. He's not going to eat you or bite you or anything. (laughs) It was so cute. She was so sweet and still is.
0: And how did he react to to that? Oh, he
1: loved it. He loved it. Every time an actor would come for dinner, (laughs) she would react like that and laugh. And then we would all just sit around and play the piano and, and do whatever we did. And, and it was fun. He was fun. He was Everything was fun. And, and again, they, they would all call, you know, when a show aired. I would hear from Shirley. I would hear from him, you know, saying, oh, God, it was really good last night. And that's a bunch of people who care about people.
0: How will you remember him?
1: As the person I knew. The happy, warm, loving, funny, charming terrific actor and singer that he was. I mean, how else would I remember him? I was never around the bad stuff. And other people can remember him that way if they want or bemoan or do whatever they do. For me, he's David Cassidy. I don't, I don't know him any other way. Mm. The other guy, I didn't know. You know, it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I only knew Dr. Jekyll. never saw the Mr. Hyde. I heard. I've heard about it, you know, and I don't care. I don't care, it means nothing to me
0: because you were there to witness the happiness that he
1: bought. I was there in his prime, let's face the fact, and, uh, and watched him over the years, you know, in other stuff where he was wonderful, and, and in Blood Brothers, wonderful performance. And That's the guy I knew. I mean, that's, I don't know the other guy. You know, I, I, I don't want to preach to people. I don't want to, you know, if, if they need help and they come to me, I'm happy to impart what I've learned. Having been there, I've never been, you know, I don't drink and I don't do drugs, so I've never been there. But I have certainly been depressed and I have certainly been suicidal. And, you know, if I can ever help anybody overcome that, I'm there. I'll always be there. I just don't want to be in that place. It's an awful, awful house to live in
0: we must always cherish the memories and the good times
1: of course and as johnny mercer nobody ever put it better than johnny mercer accentuate the positive i mean that's all that it should be how can you fail to at least have a good time (laughs) if you do that
0: you can discover further information about Bruce and read his daily blog on his website, hayneshisway.com or visit kritzaland.com for details of all his shows. And if you've missed any of my conversations on the David Cassidy Connections podcast, where I have enjoyed the company of guests, including Bobby Rydell, Felix Cavallari, John Baylor, Ruth McCartney and fans from around the world, You can find all of them on your chosen podcast platform. You can read more about Bruce's memories of working with David in my book, Cherish David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, available from Amazon and all major bookstores online, or just order in store.